You're listening to a podcast from Meaning of Life TV. Hi, welcome to Meaning of Life TV. My name is Arya Cohen-Wade. I'm an editor at Meaning of Life and Blogging Heads TV, where I host a regular show called Culturally Determined. Uh, but today we're on Meaning of Life, and my guest today is uh, Pater Edmund. Uh, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, hello. I'm Pater Edmund. I'm a monk uh, in a Cistercian monastery in Austria, Heiligenkreuz, um, but I also write a blog in English, um, which I guess is why I'm here. Yeah, well, um, I also don't know how to pronounce the name of your blog. Could you, could you pronounce it? Yeah, Sankrochensis is the way I say it. Okay, and we'll include a link to that um, blog below. Uh, so the reason we're having this... So thanks so much for coming on today. The reason we're having this conversation is... Um, a intellectual debate that's been happening for the past couple months about a subject that I had never heard of before. And I, you know, a couple months ago, I follow a number of um, Catholic writers on Twitter and I started seeing references to uh, something called Mortara and uh, something called integralism. And I, I, I felt like it was this debate that was happening where I just was like totally at sea. And so I started to do some research and found out more about it, about it, and thought it was really fascinating. And um, uh, the uh, so it was it was sparked by an essay that appeared in the uh, magazine First Things um, called Non Posamus. Is that how you would pronounce that? Yeah. Well, I would say Non Posamus. Okay. My I took some Latin in high school, but it's been a while. Um, yeah, they're, they're different systems of Latin pronunciation. Yeah. Um, and can you? And this is about this uh, this infamous case known as the Mortara case. Um, so, for people who have never heard of this before, could you kind of explain what what this case is about and kind of why we're talking about it now? Sure. So, the case um, took place in the 1850s um, in the what was then the Papal States in. Central Italy. So Central Italy was still ruled by the Pope, who at the time was Pope Pius IX. And in Bologna, which was at that time part of the Papal States, um, there was a Jewish boy, Edgardo Mortara, who, um, when he was a baby, he got sick and he was in danger of death. And his Christian nanny baptized him. And then some years later, when he was six years old, uh, the fact that he had been baptized came to light. And um, the law at the time was that if you if you were baptized, you were a Christian and you needed to have a Christian upbringing, um, which his Jewish family obviously wasn't giving him. So the government of the Papal States took him away from his family and uh, raised him at a boarding school in Rome. He ended up becoming a Catholic priest. And uh, he wrote his... He wrote his memoirs, um, in which he discusses his uh, his being taken away from his family, and then how he how he uh, became a priest, and so on. And a, an English translation of these memoirs has just been published. And uh, the non possumus review was a review by a Dominican theologian, Father Romano Cesario. Um, who defends the action of the papal states in taking this um, young boy away from his family. 
Right. So we'll we'll link to this this, uh, this. piece that came out um, a month or two ago. And why um, why do you think this like launched an intellectual firestorm? Like usually, just w- one article does not like cause months of continuing debate. That's pretty unusual. Why do you think this this uh, sparked such a such a raging debate? Yeah. Well, um, it has to do with uh, a larger debate within Catholicism between um, people who think that Catholicism is uh, is really reconcilable with with modern liberalism, uh, meaning not just liberal as opposed to conservative, but kind of the whole uh, liberal democratic tradition that's come out of the Enlightenment, and people who think it isn't. So the the Catholic Church was originally very, um, as probably most people know, was very resistant to the Enlightenment, um, especially after the French Revolution. You have a lot of polemics um, from the popes against uh, these liberal ideas, as they were called. But after World War II, when you get a big reaction against totalitarianism, you have an attempt by the church to uh, achieve a kind of rapprochement, a kind of uh, reconciliation between the church and uh, liberal ideas, um, which sort of reached a climax in the Second Vatican Council, which was a, a, an assembly of all the, the Catholic bishops that took place in the 60s. And um, so there are different ways of reading what the council says. And many Catholic thinkers think that it really, um, it really was a wholehearted endorsement of liberalism, understood in a certain way. Whereas other Catholics think, no, it tried, it was kind of, uh, tried to be a bit more friendly, but it didn't change the basic, um, Catholic positions that aren't really reconcilable with liberalism. And, um, this article of, of uh, Cesario's really brought that to a head because the the main point of his argument is that uh, if you become if you're baptized, that really changes something in your soul. You become a member of the church, and the church is conceived of as what the the medieval canonists call a complete society, as societas perfecta, which means it's not just a voluntary club or something, but it's more like a state that you're a citizen of and that has the authority to uh, command you to do certain things and to punish you if you're not faithful to um, the obligations that baptism gives you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so one of the peculiarities of this case is that, you know, you had the, um, the spiritual and political role leadership roles merged in the in the papal states and um you know i i admit i'm not up on my italian or catholic history very well and i hadn't even really thought about how you know the pope still had temporal power in certain areas of italy at like the time of the american civil war um so he was so pope Pius was you know like both pope and princely ruler of these you know, enclaves and his authority was, you know, equivalent to like monarchical authority. Is that right? That's yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, 
which uh, is kind of an unusual situation to have uh, the spiritual and temporal authority united in one person. I mean, in, in medieval Europe, the more usual situation was to have um, the temporal authority and the spiritual authority in separate hands, but the spiritual authority claimed the right to call in the temporal authority to help enforce um, church law. So even in, in, in areas that weren't ruled, that weren't part of the papal states, the Pope would have claimed the right to ask the reigning monarch uh, to uh, enforce church law with, uh, yeah, with temporal force. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, so at the time in the 1850s, this case, it, it seems kind of like an analog to like the Dreyfus affair in that it was like an international cause celeb. It involved a, a conflict, um, in which a Jewish person is a central character. And, um, it also aroused a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment internationally. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. It was seen as as being a scandal that in you know the enlightened nineteenth century something like this could happen that the Pope could uh, take a boy away from his own family. Right, and it seems it seems like there were like international appeals to you know like diplomatic appeals to reverse this decision, right? Indeed, there were. There was. They tried to put a lot of pressure on the Pope, uh, but he said that he didn't have any choice. Non possumus the title of that article means we are not able, meaning uh, I don't have any choice in this. I have to follow church law. Right. Uh, and that ended up, uh, that ended up um, helping the cause of the Risorgimento, the Italian revolution that eventually uh, was to conquer the papal states and abolish the temporal authority of the Pope there. Right. So, um, Strategically, not a great decision, <laughs> we could perhaps say, with the benefit of history. Um, yeah, from, from a Machiavellian point of view, it was a bad call. Right. Yeah. Um, so how how do – what is the view – okay, so um, Cesario, um, I, I think the, the, the reason this article was so controversial was that Cesario wrote it in its kind of an apologetic way – and he's trying to show that what the Pope did was essentially right. And a lot of people criticized the article for ignoring the humanity of um, the boy and his parents. And it's kind of like, the, 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 what I got from the article is kind of like, well, it's kind of sad that this thing like happened and these people are upset, but, uh, you know, it had a happy ending. His soul was saved and... So, you know, kind of like, well, I guess it was kind of good. And so this 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 made a lot of people angry, um, both uh, Catholic writers and non-Catholic writers. Um, how how do you view this case um, 150 years later? Yeah, well, I agree with Cesario. Mm-hmm. I, I think it was, um, as he says, it was, it was, the circumstances were sad. Usually it was forbidden for... Um, children to be baptized against their parents as well. So usually it would have been against the law for the um, the servant girl to baptize Edgaro, um, precisely for this reason, namely that once he was baptized, uh, 
he would have had to be removed from um, the custody of his parents. Mm-hmm. But, and just uh, just a note: some things I've read said that it's unclear whether the maid or the servant woman is telling the, was telling the truth about what really happened, and possibly the parents said he was ne- that the child was never deathly ill. So I think the the facts of, on this case are not entirely agreed to by all sides. Yeah, that's that's true. Um, but Edgaro himself, in his in his memoirs, takes the maid's uh, takes the maid's point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So the the idea was that in danger of death, and this is um, this is still the the canon law of the church today. When a child is in danger of death, um, you can baptize them even against the parents' will, because the idea is that baptism is the entry into a new kind of life, a supernatural life that's a, a participation in the life of God, um, and that will uh, so that if a child is baptized before they die, then they go um, into heaven, meaning eternal union with God, and that is uh, such an important good for the child that if the child's life is in danger. Um, then you can baptize them even against the parents' will. Mm-hmm. Um, and, yeah, the, the outrage against this is, of course, also due to the fact that he was Jewish. And um, there's a long history of injustices against the Jews done by Christians in Europe, um, which understandably causes a lot of uh, emotional distress around this uh, particular case. Um, and, you know, the one of the main, um, one of the big things that came out of, out of the Second Vatican Council in the 60s when the church was trying to, uh, to reconcile to some extent with the modern world was also a re-examination of, of uh, the church's relation to the Jews. So there was a, a very important document called Nostra Etate, uh, out of Vatican II, that was um, that sort of bent over backwards in trying to say how much the Church reveres the Jews as, in a way, our fathers in the faith. They were the people to whom God first revealed Himself, and so on. And for a lot of Catholic thinkers, um, for whom that uh, step towards a, a friendship towards the Jews is very important for for very understandable reasons. This article of Cesario's um, seemed like a, a step backwards and, and like a, a kind of a disaster. Mm-hmm. But as far as Cesario's argument itself goes, it would have applied to even if the Mortaris had not been Jews, if they had been Muslims or Buddhists or Hindus or any other non-Christian religion, mm-hmm. the same the same argument would have applied. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I, it's, it's hard, you know, it's hard to disentangle this, this history and the, the case is, um, I guess that there's a question about how unusual this case is, why this, it seems like this was not like a totally freak occurrence of this happening, yeah. but this was the one that for whatever reason, um, caught, like caught international attention. Um, so do you, looking back on this, kind of see this as like, a tragic story or like a happy story or somewhere in between? 
Yeah, somewhere in between. I mean, it's sad. It's sad for the Mortara family that their their child was taken away. Um, but ultimately, uh, at least according to his memoirs, um, he saw it as being the workings of, of God's providence in bringing him to, to know Christ, which mm-hmm. uh, he, uh, I mean, the if... If Christianity is true, which is what I believe and what Edgar Mortara came to believe, then um, being joined to Christ is more important than than anything else, more important than family um, or country or anything in the, on the natural level. That supernatural life with Christ is the most important thing. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that, that kind of provides a segue into talking about... Um, liberalism and maybe this integralism thing, which I would like someone to explain to me and maybe that someone is you. Um, So I'm, I read another piece about this that a writer named Nathan Shields uh, published in Mosaic magazine online, which is um, a very long piece and is an interesting one. And uh, he points out, you know, differing, ideas of what liberty means in the kind of modern, the modern conception versus the like Catholic or Augustinian understanding of it. And yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not setting up this up very well, but uh, what, what are your thoughts on kind of this debate of how, how the case interacts with like the, conflict between modernity and Catholic understanding. Yeah, I think that Shields' uh, essay in Mosaic is, is really good. Uh, he really explains uh, the issues very well. I recommend looking it up. He's, he's a Jewish writer, but he's, he's very fair to um, Father Cesario's side of the question. And it does come down to different conceptions of liberty. So the... Uh, the modern liberal conception of liberty is that everyone should be free to um, to decide for themselves um, what the goal of their life is. And in political um, arrangements, um, we kind of agree to disagree about that, about what's most important. And uh, we just... Um, try to organize things so that everyone uh, is free to to pursue their own conception of the good life uh, without interfering with others. Mm-hmm. Sort of the official, as it were, the official liberal uh, view. Right. Uh, so I would say that, in fact, um, in fact, modern liberalism ends up having a kind of implicit idea of what the good life is. Uh, the, the, the attempt to bracket what's most important in political matters isn't ever really successful. There's always kind of a hidden conception of um, what the good life is. And particularly, if you bracket um, sort of religious positions from uh, the political sphere, there's a kind of implicit uh, implicit suggestion there that... Um, What's most important are earthly realities and uh, being free of, of certain kinds of violence 
in the in the temporal sphere and having material prosperity and things like this. Mm-hmm. That because our common life is in a way ordered to that, there's there's a kind of implicit uh, claim that that's what's most important. Yeah. But what integralism is is kind of the opposite. Integralism is one way of of one word for describing what's kind of the traditional Catholic approach to um, to political affairs, um, namely that they should be integrated with um, with religious affairs, that the the temporal authorities should try to um, should try to help people achieve what's really good for them, and this is tied to an idea of freedom that sees freedom as being um, a knowledge of what's what's uh, really good for you and and the ability to achieve that. So it's not just the ability to, to get whatever you want. So uh, if you're an alcoholic and you want to get drunk, you're not really free because getting drunk is not really good for you. Mm-hmm. But if you really know what's good for you and you're able to get it, that would be freedom in the Augustinian sense. And the, the role of, of politics for the Catholic tradition, basically, is to help people to be free in that positive sense, to help them to get what's really good for them, um, both in the temporal sphere here in this life, and then also uh, to dispose them towards um, their eternal good, towards eternal life, which is more immediately the the concern of the church as the spiritual authority, but the temporal authority is to a certain extent subordinated to the spiritual authority in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like there are some obvious problems with, <laughs> with this idea. <laughs> One of which I, that I thought kind of like were generally decided upon when we like left like the wars of religion behind. Um, what is so, you know, um, the, <laughs> there are ideas that, uh, yeah, your, your religion is yours, my religion is mine, we'll agree to disagree on ultimate matters, but as long as we're not, like, killing each other, we can get along and have a happy society where we have positive, um, positive interactions with each other. And, uh, parts of the world where we see that, um, claims about religion are, um, you know, you know, Sunni versus Shia, um, civil war in Iraq, uh, Muslim versus Buddhist, uh, violence in, um, Burma. It kind of seems like these seem like remnants of a past way of thinking that, you know, Europe and the West have largely, um, disposed of and, there was kind of widespread agreement that while, you know, we're all going to try to get along without um, forcing uh, religious belief onto someone else. So what is is the integralist uh, reply to that? What's the integralist reply to that? Well, basically it has two parts. The the first thing to say is that... um, there's a way in which that way of looking at history is is kind of disingenuous liberal propaganda. <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> that, you know, liberalism claims to, to do away with violent strife about, um, you know, what 
about the ultimate things and, and said, well, let's agree to disagree. But if you look at the history of uh, the world since the Enlightenment and the way that liberalism has established itself, in fact, you have a lot of uh, war and violence um, that's for the sake of establishing liberalism. And mm-hmm. you mentioned Iraq. You have, you, of course, you have the civil war between Shias and uh, Sunnis, but you also have the American invasion of Iraq, which in a way is sort of a, a liberal crusade. You know, we want to get rid of um, these illiberal tyrants in the Middle East and give them the benefits of, of Western liberalism. Right. Um, and you can see that in the in the wars of religion, even in the Thirty Years' War, um, the liberal, uh, the early liberals, they they take a side in that struggle, and it's the side of the emerging nation states who want to. Um, who want to have absolute sovereignty in their own territory and who therefore want to get rid of the claims of, um, of spiritual authority. And liberalism is very complicit in the rise of, uh, of nationalism, modern nationalism, which leads to the two world wars in the 20th century. So the, the idea that, that, uh, um, the liberalism is this benign ironic force is, isn't really borne out by history. So that would be the first thing. The second thing is that um, has to do with uh, the problem of secularization. So if if you are religious and if you believe that uh, the most important thing is salvation, then um, you have to see the this the sort of the the secularization of the West that's taking place in the past couple of centuries um, as a disaster. Um, I, I live in Austria, which is, you know, uh, Central Europe is even more than the United States is uh, extremely secularized. And it's secularized very quickly within um, the past five or six decades, you know, church attendance has dropped from, uh, you know, a, a huge astronomical percentages. And uh, the the claim would be that having a liberal order and uh, enshrined in politics is one of the main drivers of secularization because it leads people to see religion as being less important than earthly matters. Because uh, in our common life, when we're deliberating about you know the uh, what to do as a country and so on those questions are bracketed and because uh, human beings are naturally political animals, as Aristotle would say, what we do on the political level seems to us to be the most important. Uh, Religion comes to be seen as, you know, sort of this unimportant private thing that's not really, um, doesn't really belong to the serious, uh, um, the serious business of life. Mm -hmm. So if you, if, if you are a, a religious believer, you think it's the most important thing, and you see liberalism as being kind of uh, leading to people losing their religion, then you see this bad. Mm-hmm. Um, what is kind of like the practical vision of the integralist for like the ideal state? Like, is there like a a desire to return to like the, a papal state kind of setup, or? the uh, more of a cooperation between a head of state and 
ahead of faith? Like how, how have people thought about how this actually cashes out? Yeah, it would be more a cooperation. The as I was uh, saying earlier, the situation in the papal states was always kind of exceptional. So the 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 tradition um, in Catholicism has always been that there are two authorities because human beings have uh, both a temporal uh, purpose to their lives um, and an eternal purpose to their lives. That is. Uh, there's both a goal of, of this life here on earth, which is a kind of temporal peace and happiness here on earth. Um, but then also the more important goal is the supernatural one that's uh, in the coming life. Um, and the one is, is sort of ordered to the other. But you should have two authorities. So there's an a early document um, by Pope Gelasius I, who's... Uh, um, a pope during the the uh, times when the the Byzantine emperor was was Christian, he still had a lot of authority in Italy, even though he was ruling in in Constantinople. And you get there uh, working out. He says that the divine providence has ordered things so that you should have a temporal authority to take care of earthly life because. Uh, if the Pope had to rule the whole world, it would uh, it would be detrimental to his care of spiritual things. He'd be too caught up in worldly affairs. Um, so you have the Emperor to take care of, of worldly affairs, the Pope to take care of spiritual affairs. But because spiritual affairs are more important, um, the the Emperor has to listen to the Pope when he's telling him uh, not to do things in the earthly sphere that would be detrimental to spiritual affairs. Mm-hmm. So that's called the the that model is called the Gelasian diarchy, and that would be the model that that integralists would uh, see as the ideal. Okay. Um, so, do you count yourself would self among the integralists? Yeah, I do. Okay. Um, how how do you think the debate is going these days? Who, who's <laughs> I feel like, you know, you you guys can't be winning right now. Do you, do you see like are there, are there good signs or or what? Well, um, I don't think that that we're going to see a return to uh, a more integralist order of things um, anytime soon. Uh, I think that. Liberalism, even though some people say it's in crisis at the moment, is still uh, extremely um, deeply rooted in modern society. Mm-hmm. I don't think the debate will have that much of uh, a revolutionary effect in the near future. I think that within the within the Catholic Church, um, that there is there has been a shift. Um, in recent years that for a time after the the council in the 1960s integralism was not really taken seriously as a position anymore you had a few traditionalists who were seen as kind of you know kooky um, right wing uh, people disloyal to the pope and so on and but I think it's that because um Partly because of the the accelerating pace of secularization, 
uh, integralism is being taken more seriously in Catholic intellectual circles. Mm-hmm. And you have some critiques of liberalism by philosophers such as Alistair McIntyre, who um, he's a philosopher at Notre Dame. He was originally a Marxist, but uh, he's since become a, a Catholic and a, a Thomist, a follower of Thomas Aquinas. He has a um, he's been writing critiques of liberalism since the 1980s, and they have uh, become more and more influential. And there are a few other f- figures like that. So I think that uh, in Catholic intellectual circles, sort of questioning the goodness of liberalism is becoming more mainstream. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, as far as the real world effects of that, political effects of that, that I'm not so sanguine. <laughs> um, it is this. It is interesting to think about how there's a, um, you know, liberalism is like the uh, the air we breathe in the secular world, and but there are challenges coming up to it from left and right. You know, the Mosaic essay mentions um, Elizabeth Brunig having more of a socialist challenge to liberalism, and you certainly see. Um, I mean, there's a conflation between like liberalism and you know, what, like is meant between an American progressivism and like philosophical liberalism. And, but you see a lot of contempt for liberalism on both sides. Um, if you uh, follow certain people on Twitter. Um, so it does, it seems like, you know, and, and Trump is part yeah, of this. That, and that, That's an interesting point. The, I think you are seeing um, in some circles, again, this is, these are not hugely influential circles, but you're seeing a kind of drawing together of critiques of liberalism from the left and from the right. So you have uh, Elizabeth Brunig has a very powerful um, left critique of liberalism that pays a lot of attention to economic questions and to the ways in which liberalism has sort of has this promise of um, freedom and prosperity, but it uh, ends up in fact involving a lot of exploitation and um, injustices of various kinds. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have that drawing together with a more right-wing traditionalist uh, critique of liberalism um, uh, as mm-hmm. being uh, antithetical to religion and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a few more questions that I wanted to ask about you more personally, but before we um, segue into that, is there anything else you want to say on the Mortara issue? Um, no, I think that that pretty much says it all. <laughs> okay, so um, how did you um, become a monk, and how did you end up in Austria when I believe you're from uh, the United States? Well, my father's Austrian. My okay. mother is American. Uh, my father's Austrian. My parents are academics, so we, we moved around a bit. I was born in Italy. Uh, my father was doing research at the Pontifical Biblical Academy um, at the time of my birth. So um, we lived in Austria for a while uh, when I was a teenager. And I I went and visited the monastery a couple of times um, and was very impressed by it. Then uh, the the solemn chanting of of the liturgical prayers that um, is done in the monastery was very moving to me. You have a great sense of sort of the majesty and awe of God, the, the the great reverence that the monks had for God was something that moved me a lot. 
But then um, I went back to the U.S. to go to college. I, I went to college at a little liberal arts school in California, um, Thomas Aquinas College, and uh, studied philosophy there. Uh, and then, but the whole time I was there, I was I was kind of going back and forth in my mind about whether I wanted to be a monk or not. And uh, then one summer vacation, I came back to the monastery, visited for a few weeks, and at the end of that time, I decided this is this is what I want to do with my life. So, after graduation, then I uh, entered the monastery. Um, why did you decide um, that becoming a monk was your life calling, as opposed to becoming a priest? And what? Um, and how are how are the two roles uh, different? Okay, so um, the the. The two roles have some overlap. There's some monks who are priests, uh, but not all monks are priests. Uh, and obviously not all priests are monks. Many priests have uh, primarily um, a practical role in the sense that they're out in the parishes, uh, you know, preaching to people, hearing confessions, um, serving uh, the, the lay people of the parish, um, whereas monks, uh, the emphasis is more on contemplation, on uh, meditating on the mysteries of God, uh, chanting the the divine praises. Um, there's a certain amount of a monastery has a certain amount of uh, separation from the outer world to to allow for more concentration um, on God. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the dif- different monasteries have different amounts of separation. There's some that are very separate, like the Carthusians, for example. There's the movie Integrate Silence about the Carthusians. They're basically completely closed off from the world uh, and live in complete silence. Then there, there are others who have more of a mixture. My monastery has more of a mixture. We have uh, a certain amount of uh, separation from the world, silence and, and meditation and so on. And um, uh, there's a part of the monastery that no one is allowed to go into except the monks. But we also have a certain amount of uh, activities um, that are directed outward. So we have, for example, a seminary where we teach seminarians who are preparing for the priesthood. Um, that's where I'm working at the moment. I'm lecturing in theology at our seminary. Okay. Um, and you are a monk with a blog. So you obviously have not withdrawn from the world. Um, is that is that unusual? Um, the, the amount it, of like outreach that that you in particular are doing. Uh, it's not unusual in our monastery. We have a lot of um, media outreach. We have a, a TV studio, in fact. Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah, and a number of the monks have blocks. There are other monasteries where that would be impossible, but mm-hmm. in Vatican it's it's one of our apostolates uh, is is media. Yeah. Um, well, we'll include the link to the blog um, below. And you did a blog post on David Foster Wallace, um, I saw, which um, is one of my favorite authors. So I thought uh, so, that, yeah. was, but that was interesting. Well, uh, we can link to that one. Um, so what is, you know, what is kind of like the day-to-day life of a, of a monk like? So um, we wake up early in the morning. Uh, our first set of prayers is at 5.15 in the morning. 
Um, and uh, the the main activity, um, which is five times during the day, we meet in church for what's called the Liturgy of the Hours, which is a solemn prayer where we chant uh, the Psalms in Latin. The Psalms being the uh, 150 prayers uh, from the Old Testament that are attributed to King David by the tradition. And uh, the the fathers say the Psalms are like a mirror of the soul. Everything that, that takes place in the soul is enunciated in the Psalms and it's brought before God. And the idea is that the the purpose of, of the whole of creation is to is to praise God, but human beings are the only part of the visible world who are able to realize that. The sun and the moon and the stars and the birds and mountains and streams and so on, they're all praising God just by being what they are, by their beauty and existence. But human beings are able to actually realize that and consciously bring that before God, and that's what the, the liturgical prayer is about. Um, so we meet five times a day, 5.15 in the morning, uh, for three sets of prayers, and then 12 o'clock noon, and then 1.30, 6 o'clock, and uh, 7.45. And um, between those times, then we have uh, some time for, for a silent reading and meditation on our own, and then some time for work or study. Uh, so we have some of the monks who do manual labor. We have a beekeeper, we have a book keep, uh, book binder, uh, and so on. But then many of our monks are involved in academic work because we have the seminary and some even in pastoral work, which is very unusual for monasteries. We have some parishes in the area because of Heiligenkreuz. My monastery, uh, was founded in the year 1133. So we've been around for almost 900 years. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, for, the form of our life has changed somewhat through the inevitable developments of history. And one of the changes is that we ha now have quite a few monks who actually work outside the monastery in parish churches as parish priests. Mm -hmm. um, could you talk a little bit more about meditation, um, uh, mindfulness meditation and Buddhist meditation are things that um, probably a lot of people in our audience are familiar with and our topics that have been covered on this website before. What, what form does, does your meditation take? Yeah. So in the monastic tradition, um, there's a lot of emphasis on what's called Lectio Divina, which means divine reading. And that means reading the scriptures um, and then ruminating them, ruminating on them, as they say. So you, you read, um, and in in our tradition, in the, I'm a Cistercian monk, which is one branch of, of monasticism. In the Cistercian tradition, the, the praxis is to read um, quite a long uh, passage of, of the scriptures. Um, in some traditions, you read just a few verses and then meditate on them. But our tradition is to read a lot. And... Uh, then out of that reading to pick out some parts to go over in your mind uh, and to try to to taste the the inner meaning of the text. So there's a lot of um, emphasis on going beyond sort of the surface level 
of the text to to reach the sort of the spiritual depths, mm-hmm. uh, and that takes place in in different phases. So first, you have kind of the work of um, reading and understanding the text at the surface level, and then um, diving in. And uh, part of what happens then is you uh, you associate what's going on in that in the particular passage that you're thinking of with other passages of the scripture. Um, so you interpret the scripture through itself. Uh, and um, the the ultimate goal is to, um, well, the, uh, maybe I should say not the ultimate goal, but sort of the, the ultimate goal here on earth, the, the, the very ultimate goal would be um, union with God in heaven. But the, the goal here on earth is to come to a kind of union with God in the soul uh, here on earth. The, the scriptures are a way of leading the soul uh, towards union with God. Mm-hmm. The, fa- the favorite book of the scriptures for the Cistercian Fathers is the Song of Songs, which mm-hmm. is a, a love in the middle of the Old Testament. It's a um, or a collection of, of love poems that are, are attributed to King Solomon. He's sort of singing these poems, and then the, his beloved answers to him. And this is seen as being a figure of the relation of Christ and the church in the first place, and then uh, of God and the soul in the second place. So there's this, there's this uh, passionate relation of love between the soul and God that is um, supposed to and in union, a union of love with God. Mm-hmm. Um, do you, uh, yeah, so in the Buddhist tradition, um, some people who meditate feel like a loss of sense of self or a dissolution um, in the bounds between uh, self and other or self and the outside world. Do you experience something like that when you're meditating? Well, um, there is there is a similar um, kind of s- struggle to leave aside uh, distraction. In in Buddhist mindfulness, there's a lot of emphasis on method methods that are that's supposed to help you to sort of leave aside. Um, well, in, in Buddhist thought is kind of the illusion of the visible world. In, in Christian thinking, the, the visible world's not an illusion, but it is a distraction. It's distracting you from the greater depths. So there's some similarities there in, in sort of techniques of um, not being uh, distracted by your surroundings and not being distracted by... The most difficult thing when you're starting out is... Uh, is one's own thoughts and, and images. Mm-hmm. You're trying to concentrate on uh, on the meditation, and you have all these memories and imaginations sort of swirling around in your mind. And uh, to try to let go of that is the big challenge. Um, and th- there's uh, there are a lot of similarities between the Buddhist tradition and our tradition um, at that stage when you're trying to to free yourself of of distraction. Um, the, but the, 
the idea of loss of self is maybe there's a similarity, but it's the interpretation is very different in mm-hmm. Buddhism from in Christian mysticism. In Christian mysticism, the idea is that um, the self still has a role. The the soul is is the bride, and and God is the bridegroom. Mm-hmm. So the bride is still has an importance as being the one to to be united to the to the bridegroom. But I think in the actual so that's more sort of a, at the level of interpretation. I think in the actual meditation. I think the the experience is often very similar. That is, there is a forgetfulness of the self that comes um, when you're meditating, when you're feeling this, or when you're um, feeling is kind of a misleading way of putting it. But when you when you have some kind of inkling of of union with God, there is a kind of forgetting of the self that takes place. Mm-hmm. But what that exactly means with the interpretation would be different. Right. Um, I think that might be a good place to end it. Um, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to uh, talk to me and talk to the viewers and listeners on Meaning of Life TV. Yeah, thank you so much. It was it was uh, good fun talking to you. Okay, great. Uh, well, uh, thank you again. And right. goodbye to all of our listeners and viewers. Thanks for listening to Meaning of Life TV. You can help support this content by remembering to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. You can subscribe to all Meaning of Life episodes or to a specific program by going to our subscribe page at meaningoflife.tv slash subscribe. There you can sign up for podcast downloads via iTunes or Stitcher, or you can subscribe to our email and we'll send you an alert every time we post a new episode.